Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with Nachi Gupta, we'll be taking you through the October 2017 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, Diagnosis and Management of Acute Exacerbations of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. This is a super important topic to discuss, so I'm glad EB Medicine chose to review it this month. For sure. COPD has huge economic and human burdens in the U.S., In fact, in 2010, two studies estimated that COPD exacted a direct and indirect cost of somewhere between $36 and $50 billion in the U.S. In case it was unclear to you, that's not a small amount of money. With respect to the ED, in 2011, there were over 1.7 million ED visits for COPD-related problems, with nearly one-fifth requiring hospitalization. Again, nothing to scoff at. But before we begin, let's do some quick acknowledgments. This issue was authored by a strong team from the University of Maryland, Drs. Van Holden, Donald Slack, Michael McCurdy, and Nirav Shah. It was edited by Dr. Gabriel Wardy of the University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Geralda Xavier of Kings County Hospital in New York City. In order to provide the most up-to-date, evidence-based guidelines, they limited their searches to only articles published within the last 10 years. In total, they reviewed 127 articles, 25 articles from the Cochrane Library, as well as several important national guidelines. Despite this wealth of literature, they do point out that most of the studies are retrospective observational studies with few randomized controlled trials, so keep that in mind as we go through their recommendations. Remember that as you listen through, you'll hear a sound from time to time. We edit these to indicate that an answer to one of the CME questions is coming up. Yeah, and don't forget to go back to the article after you've listened all the way through, or while you're listening if possible and get your much-deserved CME credit. Alright, so let's get started with some definitions. COPD is characterized by persistent airflow limitation after the administration of bronchodilators with a ratio of forced expiratory volume in one second, or FEV1, to a forced vital capacity, or FVC, that's less than 70%. An acute exacerbation of COPD is an event characterized by a worsening of the patient's respiratory symptoms with cough, dyspnea, sputum production that's beyond normal day-to-day variations and leads to change in medications. Emphysema is a pathologic term that refers to the destruction of alveoli. In contrast, chronic bronchitis is an independent clinical entity characterized by cough and sputum production for three months or more per year for at least two consecutive years. As you started to mention before, COPD exacts a tremendous toll in the U.S. in both monetary costs as well as morbidity and mortality. COPD accounts for almost 20% of hospitalizations for patients over 65. COPD, along with chronic lower respiratory diseases, are the third leading cause of death in the U.S. annually, accounting for almost 150,000 deaths a year, with a projected increased disease burden over the coming decade. I think that adequately sets the stage. Let's narrow our focus from COPD in general down to acute exacerbations, the real focus of this issue. The general consensus is that the majority of acute exacerbations of COPD are caused by upper and lower respiratory tract viral and bacterial infections. In many cases, however, the patient is already colonized by pathogenic bacteria, so it's unclear what exactly triggers the acute change. In addition, there are also less common non-infectious triggers, such as PE and environmental antigens. Let's dive a bit deeper and discuss the pathophysiology for a minute. As you all probably know, patients with COPD typically have a progressive decline in both their FEV1 and FVC over time, with the FEV1 declining more rapidly due to loss of elastic recoil of the lung. And as the disease progresses, the patient's alveoli undergo emphysematous changes and the bronchioles close earlier and earlier in the expiratory phase. 
This leads to distal air trapping and progressively higher lung volumes. So then taking this full circle, you said that the most common cause for exacerbations are acute infections. If you think about it, an acute infection would increase mucosal secretions and bronchial smooth muscle contractions. This would lead to increased air trapping and thus an exacerbation. Exactly. And making matters worse, with less effective gas exchange in the emphysematous lung tissue, the patients become tachypneic, leading to dynamic hyperinflation of the lungs, further worsening their condition. And that also probably explains why positive pressure ventilation seems to work so well, since it can force open the lungs and help reduce hyperinflation by increasing PEEP. Whoa, slow down there. You're jumping ahead to treatment. Let's go in order with pre-hospital care, history, exam, and testing coming up. My apologies. The authors summarized the pre-hospital care section eloquently, so I'm going to quote them directly. The overall goals of pre-hospital management include rapid recognition, identifying healthcare proxies and advanced directives, establishing adequate IV access, initiating medical treatment, and providing safe transport. There's a really important gem hidden in there, so let me repeat it. EMS should focus on identifying proxies and advanced directives. Often patients with COPD present quite ill, so identifying goals of care up front is critical. To all our pre-hospital listeners out there, make this an important goal as we strive to really provide only the care that the patient would want. Excellent point. In addition, EMS should monitor oxygen saturation via pulse oximetry, maintaining a SAT of 88-92% to with supplemental oxygen as needed. And this goal comes out of several pre-hospital trials, which demonstrated that patients being treated with supplemental oxygen, who arrived with an oxygen saturation over 92, had an increased incidence of respiratory acidosis. Clearly, that's not desirable, but in those same trials, there was no increased length of stay, increased need for ventilatory support, or increased in-hospital mortality. Clearly, more studies are needed. And lastly, there's also probably a role for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and those requiring more support, but it hasn't been clearly defined in the pre-hospital setting just yet. If you do use it, make sure to avoid overventilation so as to not cause increased barotrauma. Great point. So EMS has safely transported the patient to the ED with a SAT somewhere between 88 and 92% with supplemental oxygen as needed. Although some cases will be slam dunk COPD exacerbations, there are many other conditions, many of them life-threatening, on the differential for a COPD exacerbation. Getting a good history is imperative. Specifically, the differential for an acute COPD exacerbation includes asthma, CHF, MI, pneumonia, and PE, to name a few of the major pathologies. You definitely don't want to be treating an acute coronary event the same way you treat COPD. Poor form to say the least. When assessing the patient, if the patient already carries a known diagnosis of COPD, make sure to assess the duration of their diagnosis, past triggers, and past treatments, like when they were on steroids last, as well as their baseline disease severity. And if they don't already carry the diagnosis, but you suspect it, there are definitely some clues in the history which might point you towards it. Smoking is the greatest risk factor, with over 70% of COPD cases occurring in smokers. A 40-plus pack year history has a likelihood ratio of about 8.3. Although far less predictive, other important clues to assess for include a history of asthma, history of multiple childhood URIs, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and chronic exposures to heating fuels, toxins, dust, chemicals, wood smoke, and smog. Age over 45 is also a risk factor, albeit a small one. And when assessing for possible COPD triggers, make sure to assess for medication noncompliance, medication changes, cold symptoms, dyspnea, or changes in their cough pattern. Hold on for a second. I've always wondered about this. Is it actually useful to ask about the productivity or color of the sputum? Does that honestly have a meaningful clinical significance? Great question. In one bronchoscopic study of only 40 patients, a self-report of purulent sputum production had an odds ratio of 27 for bacterial infection in the lower airways. Interesting. 
All right, let's move on to the physical. As always, the physical starts as you enter the room. Patients with chronic COPD typically have pursed lip breathing, a barrel chest, decreased chest expansion, hyperresonance, and cachexia. Approaching the bedside, you would invariably encounter vital sign abnormalities like tachypnea, tachycardia, and hypoxia. Although fever may be present, it neither rules in or rules out the diagnosis. Specific exam findings that suggest an acute COPD exacerbation include accessory muscle use, prolonged expiratory time, asymmetric lung sounds, wheezing, respiratory alternans, cyanosis, and neck vein distension during expiration. Perfect. Definitely lots to look out for on the physical. Let's talk testing. A CBC, serum electrolytes, and blood gas may all be helpful and should definitely be obtained on all patients requiring hospitalization. On the CBC, look out for polycythemia, a leukocytosis, or a bandemia. Comparing the baseline bicarbonate and the PaCO2 can help determine the acuity of the respiratory distress. A normal pH with an elevated PCO2 would point to a chronic, not an acute problem. In the acute setting, you would expect a respiratory acidosis. With respect to the classic ABG versus VBG debate, the authors do provide some excellent insight. After looking at available literature, they state that, quote, a venous blood gas sample is reasonable and less severe exacerbations, but an ABG is still recommended in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure or in those requiring mechanical ventilation. The ABG provides useful information not only about the degree of hypercapnia and hypoxemia, but it also allows the inpatient teams to track the response to treatment. And lastly, with respect to serum electrolytes, in one algorithm, in those admitted with a COPD exacerbation, those with the highest risk for mortality had a urea greater than 20.6, a PaCO2 greater than 48, and a normal serum albumin. So to summarize, in anybody getting admitted with a COPD exacerbation, a CBC, electrolytes, and a blood gas are a must. In the sickest patients, an ABG is preferred to a VBG, but a VBG is likely sufficient in those with lesser exacerbations. Well said. Let's move on to imaging. At a minimum, a chest x-ray should be obtained to rule out other pathologies like pneumonia, pneumothorax, pulmonary edema, etc. And typically radiographic findings in a patient with COPD include overinflation of the lungs, flattening of the hemidiaphragms, increased retrosternal airspace, bullet, and a saber-sheathed trachea. Check out figure 1 on page 6 of the article for a great CT image of a saber-sheathed trachea in which there is an increase in the posterior diameter but narrowing of the lateral diameter of the trachea. CT imaging may be pursued in those with atypical presentations or those at high risk for PE, but it's hardly essential and definitely should not be done for all patients. The next diagnostic test is the EKG. An EKG is absolutely a must because not surprisingly, 20% of patients with COPD have a cardiovascular comorbidity and about 20% of COPD exacerbations are actually precipitated by decompensated heart failure or cardiac arrhythmia. Specific arrhythmias to be on the lookout for are multifocal atrial tachycardia, which is almost exclusively associated with COPD, and also AFib, A-flutter, NSVT, and sustained VT, which are all linked to COPD severity. In those with advanced COPD, you might also note EKG changes attributed to the often associated pulmonary hypertension and RV hypertrophy. Hyperinflation of the chest may physically shift the heart's position in the chest, which can be seen as a clockwise rotation of the heart's electrical axis. And while we're talking EKGs, let me get a quick word in about troponins. An elevated troponin neither rules in or rules out COPD. In one systematic review, 18 to 73% of patients with COPD exacerbations had an elevated troponin. Similarly, BNP concentrations are also often elevated in COPD exacerbations. In one study, an elevated BNP in the setting of a COPD exacerbation predicted poor short-term outcomes. I think the take-home here is that both the BNP and the troponin may be useful, 
but all the data must be examined together within the context of the patient's history and current presentation. Great point. We don't often discuss microbiology, but I think this is one topic where it would be worthwhile. Although sputum cultures are not necessary for all patients, they should be done in those with respiratory failure, those with recent antibiotics, and those that don't respond to initial treatments. Overall, about 50% of COPD exacerbations are caused by bacterial infections with H. flu, strep pneumonia, and moraxilla being the most common bugs. Pseudomonas is usually seen in those with a greater severity of COPD. And as we mentioned before, a decent percentage, about 20 to 30% of COPD sufferers will be chronically colonized. With respect to viral agents, one meta-analysis of COPD sufferers demonstrated that 13.6% of patients with stable COPD had a positive viral panel as compared to the nearly 40% in those with acute COPD exacerbations. Common viruses include rhinovirus, RSV, and influenza. Because influenza is potentially treatable, a viral panel should be considered. The last test to discuss before moving on to treatment is, drumroll please, POCUS, or point-of-care ultrasound. On thoracic ultrasound, predominant A-lines plus lung sliding in a patient with respiratory distress had a high sensitivity and specificity for asthma or COPD. Additionally, lung ultrasound can be utilized to look for other pathologies, like a pneumothorax or pulmonary edema. In combination with lower extremity dopplers, it can also be utilized to assess for possible PE. In a study of ICU patients, lung ultrasound identified the correct diagnosis in 90.5% of patients. And in another study of 130 patients, cardiopulmonary ultrasound had a diagnostic accuracy of 95% for decompensated COPD or asthma. Although the patient samples are small, Given that there is essentially no risk associated with ultrasound, it's definitely a tool worth incorporating into your armamentarium. Before we start out on treatment, let's talk about other tests such as spirometry and tests related to diagnosing a PE. I'll cover spirometry. Spirometry and peak flows are not recommended in acute COPD exacerbations. The results may be inaccurate during an acute exacerbation and are therefore not useful. I'll touch upon PE. One of the tougher clinical decisions you must make will be determining whether or not the patient also needs to be worked up for a pulmonary embolism. Unfortunately, there's no great answer. In one systematic review of hospitalized patients with COPD, PE had a 25% prevalence, one in four. That's incredibly high. Making matters worse, there were really no significant differences in symptoms when comparing those with and without PEs. Not surprisingly, those with both a PE and a COPD exacerbation had increased mortality. 25% prevalence of PE in patients hospitalized with a COPD exacerbation, no difference in symptoms, increased mortality. I feel like we say this every episode, but man, our jobs are really hard. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to treatment. We have a lot to discuss here. Let's start out by discussing supplemental oxygen. In a 2010 prospective randomized trial comparing non-titrated oxygen versus oxygen titrated to a goal of 88 to 92%, there was a 9% versus 4% in-hospital mortality for the higher flow group versus the titrated group. Repeating it for posterity's sake, nearly double, 4 versus 9% mortality with titrated versus non-titrated supplemental oxygen. Given these findings, it's not surprising that the guidelines recommend targeting a saturation of 88 to 92%. The Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD, guidelines also suggest monitoring arterial pH within 30 to 60 minutes of initiating oxygen therapy, to monitor for oxygen-induced hypercapnia. When titrating the supplemental oxygen, bronchodilators should also be given as the mainstay of management for a COPD exacerbation. Both beta agonists and anticholinergics are commonly used. Albuterol, a beta-2 agonist, stimulates CAMP, resulting in airway smooth muscle relaxation. The anticholinergic ipratropram has both bronchodilatory and antisecretory effects. Both drugs have an onset of minutes, with ipratropium having a slightly longer time-to-peak effect. 
Thankfully, the side effect profiles are also quite favorable. Albuterol causes tremors, tachycardia, transient hypokalemia, and in some cases, a lactic acidosis. And ipratropium has almost no side effects due to its low systemic absorption. So this begs the obvious question, which agent should we use? Unfortunately, there's no clear answer as trials and subsequent meta-analysis comparing albuterol to ipratropium to combination therapy have shown no clear advantage with any specific regimen. There's also no clear answer as to whether the drug should be given via inhaler with spacer versus nebulized, and whether the drug should be given continuously versus intermittently. The authors leave such decisions up to institutional protocols, patient preferences, and available resources. Next up are the systemic corticosteroids. Steroids are considered another one of the mainstays of treatment for an acute exacerbation of COPD. Steroids are associated with enhanced bronchodilator response, reduced need for admission, reduced treatment failure, and shorter hospital lengths of stay. Unlike the beta agonists and anticholinergics, systemic corticosteroids are associated with significant side effects, including leukocytosis, hyperglycemia, restlessness, and acute psychosis with short-term use. With long-term use, side effects also include hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, myopathy, immunosuppression, and adrenal insufficiency. Despite a wealth of literature, there's still no clear-cut answer to the question of dosage, route, and duration of steroid that should be given. For most, oral is the preferred route, with lower doses over shorter periods of time. This concept was reinforced in the REDUCE trial, which showed that 40 mg of prednisone for 5 days compares similarly to a 14-day treatment course. In critically ill patients who often require mechanical ventilation, common practice is to start IV corticosteroids with higher doses and longer treatment courses. Unfortunately, this practice isn't backed by much literature. Next up to discuss are antibiotics. A large systematic review and meta-analysis published in 2008 provides some of the best evidence for our current practices. They concluded that antibiotic use in hospitalized patients reduced the rates of treatment failure and in-hospital mortality. They did not show similar benefits in ambulatory patients. This conclusion was backed by a later Cochrane review that demonstrated that antibiotics benefit ICU-bound patients the most. Perhaps most convincingly, the most recent study of a huge number of patients, almost 54,000 with COPD, found that antibiotics, in addition to corticosteroids, reduced in-hospital mortality and 30-day readmissions. Interestingly, the gold guidelines seem to come to more liberal conclusions when it comes to antibiotic usage. They support antibiotic use for patients with increased sputum purulence and either worsening dyspnea or increased sputum volume. Similarly, the ATS and ERS, and that's the American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society, their guidelines state that antibiotics may be initiated in those with altered sputum characteristics. When choosing an antibiotic, make sure to tailor to the setting. For outpatients, ceftonir, doxycycline, and azithromycin are all reasonable choices. In the inpatient setting, where coverage should be broader, consider drugs like amoxicillin clavulinate, levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, and vancomycin if you need to cover MRSA. In terms of duration, recommendations vary with the gold guidelines recommending five to seven days of treatment and other literature recommending a, quote, approximate seven-day course. The authors hedge their recommendations and state that five to ten days of therapy seems appropriate. All right, so now we've covered bronchodilators, steroids, and antibiotics. Next, we should discuss magnesium sulfate. Most of the data on magnesium sulfate comes from the asthma literature. With respect to COPD specifically, the data is very limited and quite variable. One study found a bronchodilatory response only when given in conjunction with beta agonists, but they didn't explicitly look at clinical outcomes. Consensus guidelines don't address its use in COPD, and the role of magnesium is simply unclear at this time. The authors recommend saving magnesium for asthmatic exacerbations and limiting its use in COPD. 
The final class of drugs to address before moving on to ventilation are the methylxanthines. These don't play a meaningful role in the acute management of COPD. Easy enough. All right, let's move on to ventilation, both non-invasive and invasive. For most of us, non-invasive ventilation has become our go-to acute treatment modality as the positive pressure improves gas exchange by splinting open airways and assisting with work of breathing. Non-invasive ventilation is generally very safe and well-tolerated and therefore can be used for almost everybody. However, the GOLD guidelines do give some clinical indications which are worth mentioning. GOLD recommends a trial of non-invasive for patients with an arterial pH less than 7.35 or a PCO2 over 45 and or severe dyspnea with signs of muscle fatigue or increased work of breathing. Your statement about non-invasive ventilation being generally safe is probably an understatement. There's lots of data to suggest that it's not only not bad, but it actually provides a huge benefit. A 2009 Cochrane review concluded that non-invasive ventilation decreased the need for intubation, was associated with shorter hospital stays, and decreased mortality. Those are huge benefits. And the widespread availability of non-invasive ventilation has really been a game changer for emergency physicians. With respect to settings, the authors recommend starting with an IPAP of at least five greater than the expiratory pressure with a starting pressure of eight or less. You can then titrate in increments of five every couple of minutes. And when titrating the pressure, titrate to the patient's comfort and work of breathing. The authors cite a study of just over 100 patients that showed that an arterial pH less than 7.35 or a respiratory rate greater than 20, one hour after non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, were strong predictors for need of subsequent intubation. Speaking of intubation, that's our next topic. Those that are failing non-invasive ventilation will ultimately require intubation. While ketamine is gaining popularity as an induction agent thanks to its bronchodilatory properties, there are no well-designed studies to support its use in acute COPD exacerbations. And at this time, there is no definitive recommendation for or against its use as an induction agent in COPD exacerbations. Once intubated, ventilator settings must be optimized as breath stacking can quickly become a life-threatening complication. Pay attention to the rate, tidal volume, IDE ratio, as well as pressures to assure you're allowing adequate time for complete exhalation while ventilating. And like all things in medicine, it's a balance. The clinician must avoid barotrauma and breath stacking, but at the same time, you need to remove tons of excess CO2. For this reason, many centers allow for, quote, permissive hypercapnia, as patients in the throes of an acute COPD exacerbation often tolerate some degree of acidemia. Don't forget that even if the patient is intubated and you're adjusting the ventilator to optimize the respiratory function, bronchodilators, systemic steroids, and antibiotics must be continued. All great points. Although it's definitely not the norm, it's worth mentioning that some centers are even incorporating ECMO into their treatment algorithms, as this allows you to quickly remove CO2 without intubation. Interesting. That will definitely need to be studied carefully before being implemented routinely in a treatment algorithm. The last ventilatory modality to mention here is high-flow nasal cannula. Since high-flow nasal cannula provides primarily oxygenation with minimal PEEP, its use in the setting of an acute COPD exacerbation with hypercapnic respiratory failure is limited. For now, routine use is not recommended. So that wraps up the treatment section. Let's talk controversies and the cutting edge. First up, biomarkers. In a recent Danish trial, researchers used point-of-care procalcitonin to guide antibiotic therapy. This decreased antibiotic usage without increasing harm. Pretty cool. Next up, we have Heliox. With a density about six-fold lower than that of atmospheric air, heliox can flow more quickly and smoothly into the lungs. Although studies have found decreases in respiratory efforts and intrinsic PEEP, heliox has not been associated with any improvement in clinical outcomes in acute COPD exacerbations. The last cutting-edge technique to discuss here is the incorporation of capnography into non-intubated patients. 
Theoretically, automated analysis of quantity and flow rates of end tidal CO2 could help distinguish a CHF exacerbation from a COPD exacerbation. Check out figure 4 on page 15 for some representative capnography tracings. Definitely something worth testing out during your initial resuscitation if your ED is equipped for it. The last topic for today is disposition. Unfortunately, there are no perfect rules to help determine who needs to come in and who can safely be discharged. Advanced age, baseline COPD severity, and the development of respiratory failure are all predictors of short-term mortality. In one massive meta-analysis of almost 200,000 patients, short-term factors associated with risk of death from COPD include male sex, chronic renal failure, confusion, edema, corpulmonale, acidemia, and an elevated troponin. Factors associated with risk of death from COPD in both the short and long-term include advanced age, low BMI, cardiac failure, and long-term oxygen therapy. Many scoring systems for disposition of patients with COPD have been applied with some success, but few have been found to be particularly useful. Right. And don't forget to incorporate social variables into your decision as well. The patient needs to have adequate support at home and also be able to follow up in a timely manner. If you can't assure follow-up, it's going to be difficult to safely discharge the patient. In the event the patient can be safely discharged, make sure to educate the patient on inhaler techniques and spacer use. Make sure to also focus on preventative strategies to avoid future ED visits. While not always feasible in the ED setting, common preventative strategies include smoking cessation, influenza pneumococcal vaccinations, and the addition of long-acting bronchodilators with or without inhaled corticosteroids. That's a great point. Influenza vaccination has been shown to reduce all-cause mortality in COPD, and the pneumococcal vaccines have similarly been shown to reduce the risk of invasive pneumococcal disease and hospitalizations in patients over 65 with COPD. And even if your ED doesn't offer vaccinations and you aren't comfortable starting long-acting bronchodilators, which by the way is a reasonable position to take, you can always do plenty of good just by starting a smoking cessation conversation. Later, you can refer them to their primary care doctor to take care of the rest of their healthcare maintenance. All right, I think that about does it for this week's episode. Let's summarize some of the key points. COPD is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. Over 1.5 million patients a year present to the ED requiring treatment for their COPD, with about 20% requiring inpatient hospitalization. This costs the U.S. directly and indirectly somewhere between 30 and $50 billion a year. At a minimum, all patients presenting with a possible COPD exacerbation will require a chest x-ray. Those with more severe exacerbations will require basic blood work, including a CBC, electrolytes, and a blood gas. In mild cases, a venous blood gas is sufficient in lieu of an arterial blood gas. An EKG should also be performed. Treatment for acute COPD exacerbations begins with supplemental oxygen to maintain a saturation between 88 and 92%. Bronchodilators, either beta-2 agonists or anticholinergics, or both, should be given simultaneously. A short course of corticosteroids should also be prescribed. Typically, a five-day course of 40 milligrams of prednisone is sufficient, thanks to data from the REDUCE trial. In those with purulent sputum, a short course of antibiotics is warranted. Community-acquired pathogens include strep pneumo, moraxella, and H. influenza. In critically ill patients, pseudomonas and MRSA are more common, and antibiotic regimens should be tailored to cover those pathogens as well. Although you should always defer to your local antibiogram, outpatient management typically includes either ceftonir, doxycycline, or azithromycin. Inpatient management typically includes amoxicillin, clofulonate, levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, and vancomycin or linazolid in ICU-bound patients. The early use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation has been shown to decrease the need for intubation, reduce length of stay, and decrease mortality. 
both CPAP and BiPAP may be used. With BiPAP, initial settings should include an inspiratory pressure five higher than the expiratory pressure. These pressures can be titrated every few minutes to patient response and relief of symptoms. Patients not improving on non-invasive ventilation typically require intubation. Ventilator settings should be set to avoid breath stacking with a short inspiratory time and long expiratory time. Here again, titrate the FiO2 to a saturation of 88-92%. to There are several available tools to help determine which patients can be safely discharged. None can be recommended over another. Remember to take into account patient social situations and their ability to follow up when determining a disposition. And don't forget about preventative measures. In current smokers, encourage smoking cessation. The influenza and pneumococcal vaccines should be offered or at least encouraged. Patients should also be encouraged to discuss long-acting bronchodilators with or without inhaled corticosteroids with their primary care doctors. And that's a wrap for the October 2017 episode of Amplify. Thanks for listening. For those of you planning on attending ASEP in a few weeks, make sure to check out the EB Medicine booth, number 2342 in the exhibit hall. There you can come and meet some of the authors and editors, find out about current CME materials, learn about opportunities to serve as an author or peer reviewer for future publications, and also just give feedback about any of the various products. Oh, and one last thing before we sign off, make sure to follow the EB Medicine Twitter handle at EB Medicine for updates from the conference as well as frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Hopefully we'll see you all at ASAP. And if not, that's it until November. Talk to you all soon.